Sorry, guys, I'm scrolling to the top of this uh, 17 page Word document. So that gave me more time than normal this week. So we'll either be here for a really long time or it'll just be super organized. So one of the two. Uh, now, uh, really thankful for the opportunity to get to preach again. Um, and we've just decided that whatever series Rob is going to do, I'm just going to jump in and steal whatever he's about to do because it's, it's been really fun. Um, and uh, I don't have to pick just a one-off to just randomly do. Uh, so it's really cool to be a part of a series, and that's some, something that we've talked about moving forward uh, is that we're kind of getting together, going through books of the Bible together, uh, and doing series together. So uh, that way we won't be like, hey, we're doing the book of James and we're going to see how God works through trials and then, oh, Dalton's going to take you back to Genesis or to this other book uh, just randomly. Uh, so we're hoping that this will be just a better way for us to uh, get to be together uh, and be equipped by God's word. So we're glad that you're here um, and I'm excited to get to jump into uh, these verses. We're going to cover uh, James chapter 1. Uh, verses 12 through 18 this morning. Um, we're going to camp out uh, in verse 12 for a little while. Um, and then we'll kind of skip around through these verses and kind of see um, how God is continuing to work through these trials uh, in our lives and what James has to say about that. Uh, Rob mentioned it's a super applicational book. It's basically uh, taking Jesus' teachings um, and being very, very heavily application-based uh, while pulling in, hey, this is what life looks like in trials, and hey, this is what Jesus said, and now this is how it actually applies to your life, uh, which is why it's such a popular book for so many Christians, uh, because it's so application-heavy. Uh, with that, there's the temptation for us to say, oh, this is what God says to do. Let me check it off, check it off, check it off, check it off. And then we get to a point where we're trying to do, 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 uh, and we don't understand what it's like to have that relationship with God. So I want us to be careful as we talk about these things because you'll think, this is how I'm supposed to act in the middle of trials. This is how I'm supposed to act in the middle of hardship. This is how I'm supposed to act when I'm suffering or when someone else in my life is suffering. And then there's no grace because you think, I have to live this way. I have to act this way. I have to be perfect. Um, And then you miss out on the fact that God is with you. He surrounds you with other people. He has grace for you when you fail in the middle of your trials, which is what we're talking about today. Uh, Verse 13 is huge. Verse 13 uh, is the, God, why would you put me through trials and then allow me to mess up? Why would you give me this if you want me to walk with you and you want me to trust you and you want me to be strong? Why do I fail? This can't be my fault, right? That's what verse 13 is is all about. Um, So before we jump into that, I wanted to grab part of last week so we kind of see how it all comes together. Uh, Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay? So, right off the bat, we've been talking about how you're going to encounter trials as a Christian. Jesus was clear about how we were going to encounter trials. Uh, he wasn't hiding anything. This is not the Christian life. It's not a walk where, hey, things are going to magically get better and you're not going to experience anything that's difficult at any point in time ever, right? So <clears throat> one thing that we've already covered in the series is that we encounter trials. Uh, one thing that Rob says that I love, uh, he says, you're either coming out of a trial or you're about to walk 
into another trial, right? And there, that doesn't mean that there's never a, a time for us to rest, uh, because there are times where we, where we rest, and God teaches us, and he grows us. He surrounds us by other godly people, and we can kind of catch our breath, right? But he gives us these trials to continue to grow us and to continue to help us make disciples of other people and to point other people to him, right? So it doesn't mean that there's never any times of peace, right? One thing that maybe it catches your eye, caught my eye when I was reading this, is that he says, blessed. How are we blessed when we're facing trials, right? So how can you be blessed when you're facing trials at work? Trials with your boss, trials with your coworkers, things pop up with your family, things pop up with your spouse, your kids, your friends. They get sick, uh, people hurt you, people turn their back on you, right? There are medical conditions, there's natural disasters, especially where we live, right? Uh, how do you handle things that completely throw your life off track? How are you supposed to handle these trials? How are you blessed when those things are happening to you? How could you possibly be blessed when life just seems like it completely derails you, right? Throws you off the path that you thought you needed to be on. You're like, oh, I was right where I wanted to be. Things are finally coming together, and now it's all falling apart, right? How, how are you blessed in the middle of that? Um, man, there is... I've been trying to figure out the right way to say this for so long. And then you just read other things, and you're like, wow, golly, these guys are so much smarter than me. They finally just put it together in the perfect way. John MacArthur, uh, some of you may know, he says, blessed means much more than mere happiness of a carefree life that has little conflict or trouble. Rather, it carries the idea of profound inner joy and satisfaction, a joy that only the Lord himself is able to bestow on those who, for his sake and in his power, faithfully and patiently endure and conquer trials. I was like, wow, he just he hit the nail on the head for what I've been trying to say for, for forever. Um, so what's he saying? He's saying that we will not be blessed to just have an easy life with no issues, with no problems, Right? With no trials, with no arguments, no conflicts or hard times. Rather, you will experience the fullness of God. Perfect joy, perfect peace, happiness when you shouldn't be happy, right? Understanding when things really shouldn't make sense. Joy when it feels like everything is not going the right way, right? Why will that happen? How will that happen? It will happen because God bestows it upon you as we follow him and as we trust him in the middle of difficult times, okay? And I'm not saying that, oh, something terrible is going to happen, you're immediately going to be happy, right? What we're saying is you're going to realize that God is with you and that he gives you strength. You're going to realize that he gives you peace. You're going to realize and you're going to experience, and some of you already have, you've experienced his love and you've experienced his power and you've experienced him working in you and through you in the middle of very difficult times, right? First Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, uh, gives us a wonderful application uh, of what it's like for Christians to have joy in the middle of suffering and trials. Uh, for those of you who know, this is a very, very difficult time in Scripture. These Christians are being persecuted, they're being killed, they're being burned alive, they're being uh, thrown in arenas with animals. Uh, they just have it out for Christians, right? And in verse 5, uh, he says, 
In verse 5, he talks about the gospel. In verse 6, he says, in this, and he's referencing the gospel. So in the gospel, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So saying you're experiencing trials, but you rejoice. Why? Because the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So it says they obtain salvation because of their belief and love of God, not their works. The works are evidence of the heart that is moved and transformed by grace and the love of God that's manifested through Jesus. So when we look at the second half of verse 12, right, it says, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So he says, stood the test. And then he says, you'll receive the crown of life. And that makes it sound like he's saying, you only get the crown of life if you stand the test, which is the trials that we're talking about, right? So you're going through these trials, you're seeking God. That's what standing the test means. You walk out of the trial and you're still pursuing the Lord, right? You still have relationship with him. You don't abandon him. You don't give up on him. So he says, you stand the test and there's a promise. Those who stand the test will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So this crown of life, this is eternal life, okay? It's not the jewels in the crown that they talk about. Uh, Paul's talked about this in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 25, where it says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And in Revelations chapter 2, uh, verses 10 through 11, when he's writing to the church in Smyrna, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So in both of these cases, different authors talking about the crown of life, when they reference this crown of life, they're referencing that laurel wreath that athletes used to get when they would win, right? Like at the Olympic Games, right? The first serious athletic games. But what's really important is the end of this so we don't end up thinking that there's this works-based salvation or that we have to handle these trials really well or God's not going to bless us or God's not going to love us. He's saying... No, you stand the trials and you receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life has been promised to those who love him. Eternal life is promised to those who love God. So this is huge for two reasons, right? And we, we already alluded to that. The first one, salvation is a gift by grace through faith. So that's our trust in God. We love God. You are saved because you trust God. God. You believe in God. You put your faith in Him. That's the only reason that you're saved. It's the only way that you can be saved. It's not through your works and it's not through your effort. And then number two, our love for God, and this is really important as we look at trials, our love for God is what allows us to keep going through trials. Our love for God is what allows us to walk out of trials more like Him than when we entered the trial. 
And this is important because for those of you who are actively walking with Jesus, you've experienced trials. Or for those of you who are deciding to follow Jesus more and more, you realize things are getting more difficult at work. Things are getting more difficult at home. Things are getting more difficult around my friends. It's harder to be around them. These different things keep popping up, right? Some of you work in the plants. We've talked. I work in a public school. We've talked, right? Things in the world are not great. People do not like Jesus people because it's foolishness to them. The ways of the Lord are foolishness to those who are perishing. You might love people and they might be like, wow, I see these incredible things in you. But at some point you're going to rub them the wrong way because the ways of the Lord are foolishness to those who are perishing. They do not like it. They can't stand it. It's like salt in the wound to them. It bothers them. It bugs them. They love parts of it because their souls desire God in his perfect plan. But part of the reason that we face trials is because the people around us are also moved against us. Satan is also constantly against us, moving them against us because he doesn't want people to know Jesus. He wants to lead us astray. We're going to talk about it in a minute in verse 13. It gets really crazy. Satan, the, the thing that he, he desires the most is for us to be drawn away from the God who created us, from the God that we were designed by and designed to be in relationship with. And when we encounter people who don't get that, and when you say, there is something that you love that they have taken and placed in God's place, and you say, that's not it. That's not what you're supposed to have. You're taking their God away. A temporary God that was never meant to be their God. But they get violent and they get ugly, right? And some of us know because we've been there, right? So our love for God is what allows us to keep going through trials when people get ugly with us, when life gets ugly, right? When Satan comes after you and and tempts you and gives you very difficult battles. So, one commentator wrote this. He said, A genuine Christian is not someone who at one point in time made a profession of faith in Christ, but he is a person who demonstrates true faith by an ongoing love for God that cannot be damaged, much less destroyed by troubles and afflictions, no matter how severe or long-lasting. So, where does this type of love come from? Because we've talked about doing and I never, I never want to just talk about what you need to do. Because if we stand here and we tell you what you need to do, you're going to walk out of here with a checklist. And that's the last thing that I want. You need to be changed. We need to be transformed by Jesus. What's going to change you? What's going to transform you? What's going to help you? You need to know where the love comes from. You need to know why we love God. You've seen people. I've seen people. Before I was a Christian, I was like, how does this guy just follow the Lord? How does he do that? I don't understand. When I was in high school, I knew Brandon, and Brandon could tell you things about me before I was a Christian. You should talk to him after. Uh, I mean, some of you, some of you knew me. You saw me play. Uh, Oh, my gosh. I saw Brandon. I was like, how is that guy so genuine all the time? Like, you know, they say fake it till you make it. I was like, golly, I had never encountered people who love Jesus and who love people 
just because. For no other reason, no motive, no ulterior motive. Where does that love exist? What exists in Christ? You're changed by that. So when we encounter trials, and Rob has said this, we encounter trials so that we might point other people to Jesus through the genuineness of our hearts, through the genuineness of our faith, right? I saw that in guys like Brandon. I saw I didn't see it in many people. <laughs> I'll tell you that, but I saw it in guys like Brandon. In the middle of terrible things happening on the basketball court, in the middle of terrible things happening in the hallways of Venton High School, there was a tested genuineness of faith in a few men that changed me. Where does that come from? That comes from Jesus. That comes through us understanding God's character through his word, which is how he reveals it to us, right? That's the truth that he talks about in verse 18. So I'll jump to that really fast. It says, of his own will, it's of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's the gospel, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, that we should be a kind of creature that relates to him, that knows him, that knows him deeply and personally and intimately. So how do you walk through trials without abandoning God, without abandoning your faith, and without just trying to handle it all yourself or trying to make it through and just survive, right? We've all been there. We've all seen those people who just, who are just trying to survive. Like I know sometimes people come up to the school, they've got like seven kids running around, and they're just trying to survive. Like, I'm just trying to make it. Coach, can you just help me get my kids in the car? I'm like, absolutely, I got you. I just had three of them. I can't imagine what it's like to have seven, right? Me and Rebecca joke, we're going to have two. This is the space in the middle between those two because we need some time, right? You see people just trying to survive. You don't want to survive your trial like that. No, you want to trust God. You want to trust him. How can you trust him? You lean into him and his word and you lean into his character, We understand that we don't abandon God because he never abandoned us. He is always with you in the middle of your trial. And I can tell you I've been through some ugly stuff, uh, but I know that he has never abandoned me. And how can I lean into him? And how does the word help me see that? I know that he never abandoned me on the cross. I know that when Jesus was on the cross, there were guys who said, oh, you know, our sin held Jesus to the cross and those nails held him to the cross. No, no. I mean, yes, but no. Jesus' love held him to the cross. Jesus' love for the Father, and these are two things that we have to have. We have to have a love for God, just an absolute love for God, as we see the absolute love that he has for us. Jesus' love for the Father, his desire to please the Father held him to that cross, and his love for us, his desire for us to be drawn back to him, even though we didn't deserve to be, that that is what changes us. We know that he didn't abandon us. He didn't abandon the cross for us. And on the cross, he's not just experiencing physical pain, but he's feeling his soul torn from God and from fellowship with the Father because that's what it was. He's removed from that fellowship that he had since the beginning of creation. Drawn away from God like that. Knowing, I think about people that I know that I love here at Crossroads that I've known for six years. There have been many, plenty of times where I'm like, these guys are closer than family close to the family, to understand what it would be like to just be ripped away from them and understanding that. That's what Jesus felt. Ripped away from the presence of the Father. 
taken away from him so that we wouldn't be taken away from him, so that we wouldn't experience hell because that's ultimately what hell is. It's not just pain and suffering. It's no longer encountering the presence of God. That's the worst thing about hell. That's what Jesus wanted to save us from. He didn't abandon the cross because he didn't want us to have that because he didn't ever want us to be abandoned. He wanted us to be in fellowship with God. That's what we were created for. So his love for us, him being our perfect savior who takes the punishment for us, that's the type of understanding that changes our hearts. When we know that love, we won't just try to survive those trials, right? We will seek him, we will lean into him, we will say, God, what do you want me to do in the middle of this trial? How do you want me to handle this right now, right? I... uh. I joke around with you guys and act like I'm an old man. In some ways, I am. Uh, some of my our friends will tell you that. Uh, I love the the older Presbyterian ministers. Those guys just I don't know. Some of them just they get it. They're really Baptists. I don't think they know that they're really Baptists. Um, and I have a couple of buddies that I joke with like that too. But man, Gardner Spring, he's this guy Timothy Keller, and then this guy Gardner Spring. He's an evangelical pastor in New York. Um, and he, he was talking about genuine characteristics and traits of believers, right, of Christians. Uh, he says, and it's really wordy. Um, I'm going to read it to you anyway, so I'll, I'll paraphrase it again. But he says, there is a vast difference between such an affection and that selfish and unhallowed friendship to God which terminates on our own happiness as its supreme motive and end. If a man in his supposed love to God has no ultimate regard except to his own happiness, if he delights in God not for what he is, but for what he is to him, in such a sentiment there is no moral virtue. There is indeed great love of self, but no true love to God. But where the enmity of the carnal mind is slain, the soul is reconciled to the divine creator, as it is. God himself, in the fullness of his manifested glory, becomes the object of devout and delighted contemplation. In his more favored hours, the views of a good man are in a great measure diverted from himself as his thoughts glance toward the varied excellence of the deity. He scarcely stops to inquire whether the being whose character fills his mind in comparison of whose dignity and beauty all things are atoms and vanity will extend his mercy to him. His soul cleaves to God and in the warmth and fervor of devout affection he can often say, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on the earth that I desire beside thee. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. I know that's a lot, and that's the last one, I promise. I'm not going to quote any more of them. Um, and if, if you didn't get that, I had to read that five times, maybe six, so it's all good. Uh, but allow me to paraphrase, you know, in a, in a way that I feel like just puts it together better, right? We Christians, we go back and forth with two views of God on many different things, Right? You might, you might understand what it's like to, to live for Jesus and live out the gospel in the workplace. But that doesn't mean that we always understand how that's going to play out in our finances or how it's going to play out in the way that we parent our, student, our, our children. Um, or for me, how it's going to play out in every different situation and conflict with kids that aren't my own, right? That you can't put your hands on and paddle, right? Um, how's the gospel going to play out in all these different situations? How are you going to apply it? We've got these two different views of God. Um, so the first that Gardner Spring is talking about, 
God is our convenient friend. We just view God as our convenient friend. Uh, so what does that mean? We, we offer lip service. We might offer a tithe, but we don't give him our whole heart. There's no time spent slowing down and dwelling in his word, really thinking about it, really thinking about the end of the day. Did I handle that situation right? Let me think about that. Let me reflect on that. So-and-so said this about me, and maybe there's some truth to it. Maybe I should sit and think about it and reflect on it for a minute and see if there is something that God wants me to take there and to just let him have and let him change, right? Because I'll tell you, I've been trying to follow Jesus, and there's always something. There's always something that he wants to change, right? So we view him as our, as our convenient friend, um, and it's funny because we all have people like that in our lives. Me and, uh, me and Nate and Brandon, some of the other guys, uh, we'll go up to the courts uh, here in town at the new rec, which is great. It's great. Let me lead with that. Kids are there. Grown men are there. You've got 25-year-olds and 14-year-olds playing basketball with one another, right? And sometimes they're awful to one another. Uh, I would say most of the time they're awful to one another. And we're able to go in and be positive, right? But some of these people, they always like, hey, man, y'all, y'all need a fifth? Pick me up. Pick me up. And I, I, we call them convenient friends, right? Because when things are good, they're really good. When things are bad, you'll be looking for a fifth player. <laughs> they will be gone very quickly. Man, y'all suck. I'm done playing with y'all. <laughs> as soon as you miss a couple, that's it. And that... That is our heart with the Lord many times. God, I can't believe you're going to give me this trial. This sucks. I'm out, right? It happens. It happens, right? And it happens. That's not our heart towards God all the time, right? It's just like, hey, God, I don't like this. I don't like what you're telling me. I don't want to look at that part of my life yet. I like this part of my life. I am comfortable here. Don't touch it, right? And then other times, we're walking with them. We're like, God, take it. Change it, use it, transform it, whatever you want, right? So that's our one view of God that Gardner Spring is talking about here. We're focused on ourselves. We're focused on what we want. We're focused on what's going to be good for us. What are we going to get out of it? And if you face your trials like that, and that's your view of God when he puts you through a trial, then you're going to survive. You're going to try to survive. You're not going to try to thrive and depend on him and follow him closely, right? So our second view is that God is our closest friend who we don't abandon because he's never abandoned us, right? So I think about Rebecca because we're engaged. We're not married yet, so we're not fighting yet, um, right? Uh, uh, it's funny because we're doing premarital ca- uh, counseling with, with uh, Rusty Dollar at North Orange who is just the best guy, um, it's one of the greatest guys ever. And he's like, man, it's coming. At some point, you're going to fight. At some point. We're like, man, we really don't. Like, like, I believe you. Like, at some point, maybe. But, like, right now, we really don't. Um, but anyways, I, I'm using this illustration because it makes sense. Like, we just, we understand our relationships with our spouses for, you know, at least 50% of the way, half the time, right? Um, but I think about the great times that we have together. We went to go see uh, her brother and his wife uh, the past couple days. And we just had such a good time. We, just, we, we can go anywhere together and just make the best out of it no matter what happens. 
we're playing putt-putt in like the freezing cold yesterday. We're all laughing, having a good time, freezing out there. Um, and I think about how much I just enjoy being with Rebecca, uh, how much I delight in her, how much I think about how wonderful she is, uh, how she pursues the Lord, how she cares for me, right? You think about those things. You think about people who love you like that. And I know that that's only because of Jesus. Without Jesus, that's not there at all. Our relationship isn't like that. I don't think about why I would sacrifice for her. I wouldn't think about putting her before myself. I would think about what am I going to get in this relationship? That's, That's not what it's meant to be like. And that relationship, when we look at Ephesians 5, our relationship with our significant others it's just meant to be a reflection of God's relationship with the church and how he is with us. There's no, what am I going to get? There's only ultimate cost to self, which we see in Jesus. Jesus is like, you guys haven't given me anything. I love you anyways. I have walked in your shoes for 30 plus years resisting sin, understanding what it's like to be you, And I choose to die for you and for a people that has mistreated me and that has abused me and that has ultimately hung me upon this tree. Right? And that's what we see in Jesus. And when we see that, we see him as our closest friend. Right? We see him as someone who loves us so radically and so well that we wouldn't abandon him. And when we see him like that in every part of life, We have no problem trusting him with our finances, trusting him with our job, doing what he's asking us to do, right? When I see Jesus like that, it allows me to love Rebecca more in a selfless way, to serve more because I see how Jesus served the church, how Jesus served me, and she sees that. And our relationship is only what it is because of how we have seen and experienced the love of Jesus. So in our trials, that's how we want to see God. We have to cling to him and remember that's who he is. We're thinking about ourselves less and we're thinking about him more and more all the time. All the time, right? So that's what Gardner means and all of his fancy words. So there's some southern homestyle illustrations that help you kind of take that New York, you know, super philosophical mind uh, and bring it down. Um, the way that just really makes sense to me. Hopefully that makes sense to you guys. Um, so now we're going to enter what I call our problem child section, verses, verse 13 here, uh, if you want to put that. And the problem is us. We're the, po- we're the problem children. Um, so I just want to read these verses to you and uh, just kind of give you some bullet points of what's going on here and, and how it's going to continue to impact the rest of the book of James. Um, So it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James wouldn't have to say this if people weren't saying it, right? And I've already, in the short time that I've been around, been a Christian and and been around people who love the Lord and people who don't love the Lord and people who say they love the Lord, but... You don't really see it. Um, People say these things where they are blaming the Lord and blaming others 
for their sin and their trials and their difficult times. So here we see that despite the relationship that God has called us to with him, uh, which he tells us will be full of trials, we're tempted not just with the trials, um, but also in how we respond to trials. So this is a really difficult um, part that for some of you, hey, maybe, it, maybe it's not applicable to you, um, but maybe God will use this to equip you to help someone else um, who it is more applicable to, right? Um, that's what I found in my life. If something's not directly applicable to, you, to me, it's probably because I'm about to cross paths with someone who like, really needs it, um, which has been true for me a lot. Um, so when we face trials, we're tempted to do two things. Number one is follow the desires of the flesh, which is sin. We're tempted to just sin, right? And number two is play the blame game. We like to point the finger. Or like the kids do. I'm not, coach, I'm not pointing any elbows, but he, he's the one that smacked that kid, right? Uh, so we can't escape temptation, right? Even Jesus faced temptation. But here, we're getting into something darker. We're getting into something more spiritually damaging, right? So it's one thing, right, when we fail and we sin in the middle of a trial, in the middle of a difficult time. And we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that in a minute, right? But it's another thing to begin to blame others, okay? So we see these things in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Um, we realize that as human beings, we figured out how to point the blame and place the blame really quick. Uh, God creates Adam and Eve. Things are awesome. He's created the earth. He's created the, the sky. He's created everything. And he's created us to be in perfect relationship with him, right? And he tells them, hey, these are the things that you should do. Be fruitful, multiply. Hey, be in relationship with me. Tend to the garden. Do these things. All for my glory. All in relationship with me. But don't. Please don't eat of these two trees, right? The tree of life uh, and the tree with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Those two things. Don't do them. And God is such a good, such a good God and such a good parent because he, he always gives an explanation. I mean, so many times throughout Scripture, he gives explanations. Here's why this is a bad idea. So... What's the f- we know what happens. The serpent comes in. Eve listens to the serpent, which is Satan, and eats the fruit. And says, Adam, you should eat this fruit. Adam eats the fruit, right? And then God, he, he already knows what's happened, right? Because he's all-knowing, and he's all-powerful, um, and he's omniscient. So he's everywhere all at once, right? So what do they do, Adam and Eve? He, he asked them, hey, where are you? Why are you hiding? What's happened? Even though he already knows the answers. They say, oh, we're naked. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to, to eat of? And like I said, God knows this. So what's he doing? He's doing that emotional and spiritual surgery on their heart. Will you be honest with me? Will you own up to what you've done? Can you be honest? Even though you failed, Right? And Adam's honest. He's like, yeah, we did this. But he doesn't. He doesn't own up 100%. And neither does Eve. So we see Eve, what she do? He says, Eve, what happened? So, well, the, the serpent lied to me, and I ate the fruit, right? So she points the finger at the serpent. 
And then Adam. Adam says, I ate the fruit that the woman that you gave me, that she handed to me. So, what's Adam doing? Adam blames Eve, but then he blames God. God, you gave me her, bone of my bone, rib of my rib, flesh of my flesh. You gave me her, and now this happened, right? And I've heard guys ask this question. If God didn't want us to sin, then why is this here? Well, that's not the, that's not the issue. You're asking the wrong question. The issue is, why did you not follow God's plan? Because we distorted God's plan for everything that was perfect, right? For marriage, for relationships, for money, everything we've turned into idols. Anything can be an idol. Anything can take God's place. And then we'll end up serving that instead of him, right? So they're asking the wrong question. The answer to their question is, we perverted God's good, perfect plan. He knew that we would. He sent Jesus so that we would ultimately be restored back to him. And now we're in this transitioning phase where we, as followers of Jesus, are being transformed and trying to trust in him again to follow him. Why did they not need the tree with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Because they were already depending on God for everything. They were already trusting him. They didn't need to know what was right and what was wrong. God was going to show them. God was going to tell them. He already told them, doing this is wrong. This will bring you death. And it does. And they died, right? And we die. But Jesus died for us so that we could be saved, right? So we figure out how to do this early on. We see it in our kids. Our kids figure out how to point the finger. Well, they told me to do it. You said don't push the button, but you didn't say why. Or he said we could push the button and it would be okay. And they push the button, right? Or they put their hand on the stove, or they go somewhere that they're not supposed to go, right? So, from the beginning, we figured out how to blame other people and other things and how to blame God for all these bad things that, that go on and that happen, right? And verse 17, when we look at verse 17, we see the truth. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And that gives us the answer. For anyone that asks you that question, well, if God didn't want me to do it, then why would he allow it to be here in the first place? Why is it here in the first place? Well, that's there because we perverted his perfect plan. We're choosing to do things that are outside of his will. Verse 17 is clear. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. So that means everything that's not of God is either directly from Satan or is a perversion of something that was good and perfect that we decided to follow and do and pursue instead of following the Lord, right? Super clear. And he says, God doesn't change. There's no variation. So that's a big problem for us, right? So as we keep going, there are a couple reasons that I just want to hit about why God is this wonderful, amazing God and why we struggle in the middle of trials with temptation and with sin, okay? So, there's a couple of reasons. Number one is that tempting humans is the opposite of God's character and the heart that he has for his creation. We see that in the second half of verse 13. It says, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, right? And we covered verse 17. 
Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, from him. This tells us God's character will never change. He's always the same. He's always good, always has been, always will be. God's not affected by evil. Just like light isn't affected by the darkness, you walk into a dark room, you light your, your lighter, your match, turn on your flashlight, what happens? You see a beam. It breaks the darkness. The darkness never cuts the light. The light only cuts the darkness. That's what God does in this world. It's not the other way around, right? So God can't be tempted with evil because he's completely good. Jesus was tempted with evil when he was in the flesh. But that doesn't mean that the Father is tempted. That doesn't mean that Jesus is tempted now with evil. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is ever tempted with evil. He is constantly guiding us to what is right and what is true. And if anyone tells you differently, biblically, you saw it here, they're, they're incorrect. They're wrong. So Jesus was tempted when he was in the flesh, but that's because he was made like us for a time to show us that he could be perfect. Because even when he was tempted, he didn't sin. So, then you have this other question. Why would God allow us to choose him or to choose sin? Why, why, do you, why are you given a choice in trials? I would say that's because God loves us so much that he lets us choose. God doesn't want to force your hand. God doesn't want to force your love. When I was in high school, they played this guy. They, they brought this guy um, in named Nick Vujicic, something like that. I don't know how to pronounce that. But V-U-J-I-C-I-C, right? He's a guy with no arms and no legs. Who uh, He attempted suicide when he was 10 years old. And he's got a wonderful story. If you want to look it up, I think you can find him on YouTube. And eventually he, get, he got married and he had a son and now he speaks all over the world and he's written multiple books. And he said, one day people asked him about his son. They said, what, what is it like to not be able to hug your son? What's that like for you? And the guy just kind of looks down for a minute and he says, honestly, I'm okay with it. I've learned to love it. Because when my son hugs me, it's 100% his choice. It is because I have loved him well and taught him well and been a good father to him, right? That's, that was his response. Super sweet, super easy. That is why God does not force you to love him. God knows that he has given us what's best. He knows that his plan is perfect. He knows that he's good. And he's not being prideful about it because it's just true. He's incapable of pride. And we see that all throughout Scripture. Jesus humbled himself by becoming like us, right? No, he loves us so deeply that he lets us choose. Paul calls it trash. You can choose trash or you can choose Jesus. That's it, right? He says, I regard everything as rubbish. If it's not of Jesus. So, Moving on to our second point, because that, that helps you. That helps you. If you're having these conversations with people, and they're like, why? Why does God let you choose? That's why. Because he loves you that much, that he wants you to choose him, because he knows that he has a better love for you. He knows he has a better plan for you, and he's giving us the option. Pick your path. Pick your path. Number two, uh, verse 14, I just call it, we take the bait. We take the bait. Um, we see who's responsible for our sin. 
It's not God. It's us. So he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Guys, this is how God gets us. The words that he uses here are fishing words. You are lured and enticed by your own desire. I love to fish. I know that some of you do. Man, this is how he gets us. I saw that. I was like, lured? I wonder. I went and looked at the Greek words. Xelko, deliazo. What do they mean? Dragging away as if they were compelled by an inner desire. I just think of a hook set. Some of you have seen the underwater footage of these guys setting the hooks. You'll see the guy up top. He'll rip it back, and you'll see the fish swimming, take the lure, and they just go straight up. Maybe you've been with some guys who they set the hook so hard they just yank the fish out of the water. That's what immediately comes to mind. This is how God gets our attention. He knows that we like fishing. He put it in the Word, built an illustration, makes every preacher's job easier. So, the goal when you're fishing, right, is to present the bait in such a way that it is irresistible to the fish, right? For bass fishermen, you've experienced great heartbreak. I'm sorry. It's difficult. We've all been there. The learning curve is steep, right? It's tough. If you want a tip, I love the flukes. The junior flukes, super good. When I'm, when I'm not having a good day, that's what I throw. It always, you always get one. Um, but that's the goal, to catch the fish using the best lure possible. This is what Satan does. You know that when you're fishing, depending on where you are, depending on how cold it is or how warm it is, depending on what you're fishing for, the lure changes, right? Every single person is different. Satan uses a different bait for every single person. Why do fish take the bait? Because it is irresistible to them, and they've already decided in their minds and due to their instinct that that is what they want in that moment more than anything else. It doesn't matter. They're not thinking about the actual fish that is about to swim by, the actual minnow that's about to come by. They see your silly chartreuse minnow in front of them right there, and they say, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to hit this one right now really hard. And they hit it, and we have a great time, right? Like, whoo, got one, right? And we count, and we, we keep track, and we're like, hey, I've got two. You've got none. You're getting skunked, right? So they take the bait because they're not looking at the hook. They're not thinking about what's next. They're thinking about right here, right now, right? That's our problem. We're thinking about right here, right now. When we sin, we're thinking about right here, right now. We're not thinking about God's plan. We're not thinking about the future. I tell our students and our young adults all the time, you don't, you don't need that person right now. They're not for you. You don't need to date this person. You don't need to do that. Think about God's plan. Don't think about right now. Think about what God has for you. Don't think about what's going to make you happy for 30 seconds in the moment because that's what it does. It makes you happy temporarily. Satan twists it. It's a lie. It's not true. He says this is good for a short period of time and then it's over. Satan loves to do that. He loves to make it just good enough to hook you and not sustain you and not satisfy you. And that's what he does. So we take the bait. Why? Because of our desire. It's the desire of our hearts. So here we see, Scripture always gets back to this. Sin is a heart issue. We choose it because at some, thing, at some point in our heart, at some point in that day, at some point in that situation, or in that trial, we're not trusting God, 
We're thinking that we're going to get something good that God hasn't, hasn't intended for us to have. Matthew 15, verses 18 through 19 say, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the mouth come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, false witness, false witness and slander. We battle the desires of our hearts. The sin that we commit comes from within. Jesus said, it was already in your heart. It was already there, right? So God doesn't tempt us. Our flesh desires things outside of God's will. We are the ones who desire those things because we were separated from God. We are in the process of learning to trust God, learning to follow him as we continue to give him our lives, right? Number three, this is the last one. We're going to wrap up. Willful sin is a process that starts on the heart. And it's a process that we must battle, okay? Verses 15 through 16 say this. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be de- deceived, my beloved brothers. So what's he doing? He's, he's just taking, he has just taken sin and talked about it from our desire standpoint. And now, willful sin and how it is a process, like birth, like growing up, Right? like the life cycle for human beings, right? So here are the steps of sin. And if you understand these steps, you will be able to help others and hopefully help yourself resist sin and trust the Lord in the middle of your temptations and your struggles and your trials, right? So number one is desire. We see this at the very beginning. Desire when it has conceived. So what's desire? These are those simple desires that pop up, right? They come to our mind. And then number two, deception. We are deceived. Satan begins to lie to us. What does this look like practically? You drive by the dealership and you think, I'm hearing a noise, I'm hearing a ticking. There's a 2022 Chevy Silverado. Maybe I want that. I think we could fit that in the budget. I think we would be okay. We might be cutting it close, but I think we'll be all right. And you begin to justify the decision that you're about to make that just came to your mind. Do you need it? No. Are you coveting? Probably. You don't need it. You're beginning to be deceived. You're not, you're not thinking wisely. You're thinking quickly about how to rationalize and justify what could potentially be a poor decision. I'm not saying that you can't buy vehicles. This is just an example, right? So, we're deceived, We're deceived by false promises. We're deceived by things that we like. That's what Satan does. He's baiting the hook. He's presenting it to you. He's twitching it in front of you. He's got his secret retrieving technique, right? So, like I said, you're driving by the dealership. You see your buddy's new boat, right? Start thinking about what we want, why we want it. Okay. Number three, you make designs. You're deciding to pursue, right? So after you've rationalized the sin, now you're making your plans to go through with it. You're thinking, hmm, you know, I'm making this much a month. We've got this much left over. I don't know. I, I could do it. And then number four is disobedience to God. We go through with it. If you can catch yourself in these stages, the earlier in your mind that you decide to say, no, what is God's will right now? And to go into prayer, to pull back upon the word, to go back to the word and say, what does God want me to do in this situation? 
The sooner you decide to do that, the sooner you slay your sin. In the middle of your trials, in the middle of your struggles, in the middle of your suffering, with your friends. Sometimes with your friends, when they're going through it, it's, it's as simple as saying, how do you see Jesus working in this? How could you see Jesus pointing you back to him or to his way in this situation right now? How could you see God working through this to redeem that person who has hurt you and wounded you? You just ask a simple question, and then you leave it. Rob has used this story before. When, um, when Johnny was around, and we were trying to figure out, hey, where's Johnny going to stay? And Rob was like, I don't know if he can stay with me. And just really stressed about it. Um, a bunch of different things had happened, and uh, he had cancer and just couldn't live at home and really needed a place. And... Uh, <laughs> I just asked Rob, <clears throat> I said, I wonder who's going to show Johnny the gospel. And then I just kind of tensed up because I was waiting on him to smoke me, right? He would never do that. Um, but I saw him grip the steering wheel. <laughs> and uh, he tells the story better than I do. And nothing was said for a while. And then later on he came and he talked to me and he's like, thank you for just asking me that. Um, he said, the fact that you had asked me that just help me recenter myself on the gospel and on Jesus. And I've had friends ask me things like that because there have been times where coworkers have just wounded me you know, deeply to the core. Like you, you serve people and, and you take people out and you, you go the extra mile for them because that's what Jesus did for us and that's our motivation, right? And they turn around and they just stab you right in the back. And you have to think, Jesus was willing to redeem me and I've stabbed him in the back so many times. I've wounded him so many times. He has always welcomed me back with open arms. I have to have open arms. That's how we love those people. Asking a question as simple as that will help your friends, will help those Christians in times of need, will help your spouse. Those are tough conversations to have. Asking those questions to yourself or knowing that you need to be around someone and you need to talk to them because you need them to ask you questions like that. Those are the type of friendships and relationships that we're striving to have here. Um, we have some of, like, we have people actively doing that. Um, and you guys are. I'm always just so glad to be here. I was telling a friend, I was like, we're so blessed to be at Crossroads. We have learned so much. I mean, we're, there's always more to learn. But we're, I've been so blessed to be here to see people doing that, to have that modeled for me, to continue to try and grow in that and to teach others how to do that because that's what discipleship is. We are learning to follow Jesus in every way and that's what we're doing there. Um, So if you can catch yourself making these plans and you can slow down and you can go back and ask yourself those questions, you can ask your friends those questions, you can ask your spouse, what do you think about this? What am I missing here? How am I not seeing Jesus in this situation? Help me see Jesus in the middle of this trial and then pray together. Man, the gates of hell would rattle, right? We would see so many things change. I mean, I I see so many things changing through you guys, but it's not like we can settle and get comfortable, right? We don't want to get comfortable. When you stop facing trials, you want to be like, hmm, is God just giving me a period of rest, or am I not pedal to the metal for Jesus right now? Right? Those are just questions that we want to ask ourselves. So let me pray for you guys.